Hi, this is Pastor Ryan Spooner. I'm so glad that you're listening to our sermon podcast. I hope it's a blessing. If you live in the area, or even if you don't, we would love to have you join us on a Sunday morning. We meet at 10.30 a.m. at the Millworks in Willington, Connecticut, 156 River Road. Also, if you'd ever like to help support our church financially, we would be extremely grateful. You can donate through our website, stpaulschurchct.org. Thanks. All right. Good morning. Thank you for being hardy New Englanders and showing up for church when it's 10 degrees. It's uh, not easy to get out of bed this morning for many of you, I'm sure. It was, wasn't too easy for me. But uh, yeah, as Keith said, today we're starting a new series in the Gospel of Matthew. Uh, I'm calling it The Beginning because it'll be a four-week series on the beginning of Jesus' ministry, the beginning of his adult life. And uh, if you're paying attention, you might notice that we're kind of just continuing from where we left off before because the last several messages have been in the first couple chapters of the Gospel of Matthew. And so we're picking up right where we left off in chapter 3. So if you want to follow along in your own Bible, open up to Matthew 3. Lord, we thank you for this cold morning, and we uh, invite you to work in our hearts and minds this morning. As we open the scriptures, we pray that uh, we would be open to receive whatever it is that you want to teach us. And all God's people said, amen. In those days, John the Baptist came preaching in the wilderness of Judea and saying, Repent, for the kingdom of heaven has come near. This is he who was spoken of through the prophet Isaiah, a voice of one calling in the wilderness, Prepare the way for the Lord, make straight paths for him. John's clothes were made of camel's hair, and he had a leather belt around his waist. His food was locusts and wild honey. People went out to him from Jerusalem and all Judea and the whole region of the Jordan. Confessing their sins, they were baptized by him in the Jordan River. But when he saw many of the Pharisees and Sadducees coming to where he was baptizing, he said to them, You brood of vipers, who warned you to flee from the coming wrath? Produce fruit in keeping with repentance. And do not think you can say to yourselves, We have Abraham as our father. I tell you that out of these stones God can raise up children for Abraham. The axe is already at the root of the trees. And every tree that does not produce good fruit will be cut down and thrown into the fire. I baptize you with water for repentance. But after me comes one who is more powerful than I, whose sandals I am not worthy to carry. He will baptize you with the Holy Spirit and fire. His winnowing fork is in his hand, and he will clear his threshing floor, gathering his wheat into the barn and burning up the chaff with unquenchable fire. Then Jesus came from Galilee to the Jordan to be baptized by John. But John tried to deter him, saying, I need to be baptized by you, and do you come to me? Jesus replied, Let it be so now. It is proper for us to do this, to fulfill all righteousness. Then John consented. As soon as Jesus was baptized, he went up out of the water. At that moment, heaven was opened, and he saw the Spirit of God descending like a dove and alighting on him. And a voice from heaven said, This is my son, whom I love. With him I am well pleased. 
So there are four accounts of the life of Jesus in the Bible, the Gospels, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. And they all tell the same essential story, but there are differences. Uh, differences in emphases, different nuances. For example, Matthew and Luke tell the story of Jesus' birth. Mark and John do not. Uh, the Gospel of Luke tells my favorite parable, the parable of the prodigal son. But uh, Matthew, Mark, and John don't include that parable. So they have different emphases. But one event that all four of the Gospels record in the beginning is the baptism of Jesus. They talk about John the Baptist and John baptizing Jesus in the first couple chapters, all four Gospels. So it's interesting that all of the Gospel writers thought this is something that has to be included. And what I want to consider this morning is, well, why would that be? You know, why is it such a, a big deal, the baptism of Jesus? And in answering that question, we're going to ask two sub-questions, which is, what is the significance of John the Baptist, and what is the significance specifically of, of Jesus' baptism? So, let's start with John the Baptist. So, John was actually a relative of Jesus's. Um, John's mother was a woman named Elizabeth, and Elizabeth was Mary's cousin. And there's a, a scene, I think it's in Luke's Gospel, where the pregnant Mary goes to visit the pregnant Elizabeth. And even then, John, who is in the womb, is already testifying that Jesus is the Christ. Because it says that when Mary draws near, that the, uh, the unborn John leaps in Elizabeth's womb, you know, in, in excitement, like, he's here. And so that is the theme of John the Baptist's life, that he is always testifying that his cousin, Jesus, is the long-awaited Messiah. Now we're told that John lived and ministered in the wilderness, not in Jerusalem, which was kind of all part of his resistance against the society right, the worldly society. He wanted to make it clear that things had gotten really messed up in Jerusalem. And so part of the way that he protested was by actively separating himself, removing himself from that worldly system and living in the wilderness. Now Matthew gives us a few details about what John wore and what he ate. So what did he wear? It says he he wore garments made of camel's hair, and he had a leather belt around his waist. Now, the reason that is significant is because the prophet Elijah, who is one of the greatest prophets in the Old Testament, he ministered about 900 years before this, he was described as wearing the same clothes. And not only did uh, John and Elijah share similar fashion, but they shared just a similar style. Right? They were both fiery prophets who had run-ins with the authorities. You might know that John the Baptist eventually gets beheaded uh, by the king of Judea. Uh, so they're both fiery prophets, and they both spent time in the wilderness. And all of this is significant because the Israelites believed that before the Messiah came, the prophet Elijah would return. 
And the reason they thought that is because of the last two verses in the Old Testament. The book of Malachi ends by saying this. See, I will send the prophet Elijah to you before that great and dreadful day of the Lord comes. He will turn the hearts of the parents to their children and the hearts of the children to their parents, or else I will come and strike the land with a total destruction. Now, many people interpreted this to mean that Elijah would literally come back. But there's another way of understanding it, which is that somebody who has the same fire, the same kind of spirit as Elijah, is going to show up shortly before the Messiah does. And both Matthew and Jesus confirm that John the Baptist is that promised Elijah. Um, so, again, this is part of John the Baptist's significance, that he is this fulfillment of prophecy. What about John's diet? What's the significance of that? His food was locusts and wild honey. Well, there's a lot of speculation about this, why this is mentioned. Um, what we can say for certain is that that reveals two things about John. It reveals his poverty, and it reveals his commitment to kosher eating, right? Because if you're eating locusts and wild honey, that's it. Well, you're not eating anything unclean. But you are also not eating well, right? So John is dramatically showing his obedience to the law, and uh, also his solidarity with the poor who are being taken advantage of by the worldly system. Right? Now, a speculative interpretation that I find compelling is that the locusts in the honey that John is eating are also reflective of the message that comes out of his mouth. Because depending on who you are, you're either going to hear what he has to say like locusts or like honey. In other words, like judgment or like sweetness. Okay, if you are somebody who is committing injustice, what John is saying is going to sound like locusts. But if you are somebody who is the victim of injustice, what John is saying is going to sound like honey. It's going to sound sweet to you. So, interesting speculation. But, returning to what we can know for sure, John's diet was an expression of his separation from society and the worldly system that he was critiquing. And John invited people to join him in that separation, to come out into the wilderness, to express their own critique of that system, to confess their sins, and then to be baptized in the Jordan River as a way of repenting and beginning anew. Now, interestingly, this is the first time in the Bible, where we hear this word, baptize. It's not something that's talked about in the Old Testament, baptism. Um, and yet, this is the, the act, the symbol that is chosen uh, for people to, to use in order to express their repentance. Now, there's an author and a pastor named Brian Zond who offered an uh, insight on why they're being baptized in the Jordan River that I never heard before and I thought was interesting. Uh, he said the reason that John the Baptist is baptizing, 
having people go through the waters of the Jordan is because of what the Jordan represented to the Israelites. Did you know that there's not just one splitting of the sea in the Old Testament, but there's two? Most of us know about the splitting of the Red Sea, right, when the Israelites came out of Egypt. But there's a second splitting of the sea, which is the splitting of the Jordan. So after the Israelites wandered in the wilderness for years and years, after going through the Red Sea, there's another splitting of the sea where they finally enter into the Promised Land. So when John the Baptist is having people come back to the Jordan and go through the waters of the Jordan, it's a way of saying, you know what? We need to begin anew, we need to start afresh, because hundreds of years ago, our ancestors entered into that promised land by going through the Jordan, and we have not been faithful to the covenant ever since then. Things have not been going well. So let's do a reset. Let's go back through the Jordan and express, we need a do-over. We need to start over. Now, I know that all of this raises a question, which, which it would be, what was so messed up with society? What was so bad that everybody needed to come out and begin anew? You know, John goes so far as to say, the axe is already at the root of the trees, meaning the destruction of Jerusalem is imminent, it's coming. So why? What's the problem? Well, Luke's account gives us some insight into this. It says that right after John says, the axe is at the root of the tree, the people ask, what should we do then? I, I love the straightforwardness of that question. What should we do if judgment's coming? And John answers, anyone who has two shirts should share with the one who has none, and anyone who has food should do the same. Interesting. And then right after that, it says, even tax collectors came to be baptized. Teacher, they asked, what should we do? Well, don't collect any more than you are required to, he told them. And then some soldiers asked him, and what should we do? He replied, don't extort money and don't accuse people falsely. Be content with your pay. So John's call to repent is all about turning from greed. Right? That's what all three of those things are about. Turning from greed and looking out for, for those who are in need. The reason that the axe is at the root of the tree of Jerusalem, the reason it's about to fall, is because too many people are worshipping money rather than God. And in any society, when that starts to happen, it's only a matter of time before it falls. The axe is at the root of the tree. So, John is the promised return of Elijah. And like Elijah, he is calling people to live with compassion and justice and confronting the authorities that are not doing that. It's also good to think of John the Baptist as a bridge between the Old Covenant and the New Covenant. He is the last Old Covenant prophet. And as the last Old Covenant prophet, he has the honor of saying, the one that we have been waiting for has arrived, the New Covenant is here, 
And here he is. And he's also the fulfillment of scripture in one other way. In those days, if a king was going to come into a city, it was customary to have a herald come first to announce that he was on his way. And the scriptures implied that before the king of kings arrived, the Messiah, that he would also have a herald to announce his coming. And so Matthew recognizes, right, that John the Baptist is that promised herald, right? He says, this is the one spoken of through the prophet Isaiah, a voice of one calling in the wilderness, prepare the way for the Lord, make straight paths for him. And then Jesus himself also um, says about John, this is the one about whom it is written, I will send my messenger ahead of you who will prepare your way before you. So, why does John the Baptist matter? Quick review. He's the fulfillment of prophecy. He's both the promised herald and the return of Elijah. He prepares the people for Jesus' arrival. And he is the bridge between the Old Covenant and the New Covenant. All right. So we got John the Baptist figured out, hopefully. Now let's talk about the part I'm excited to talk, to talk about, which is the baptism, Jesus' baptism. What is the meaning of this moment? It's kind of confusing, isn't it, right? Because John's baptism is a baptism of repentance. But Jesus doesn't need to repent, right? In fact, Jesus is the one who is without sin. So why is he baptized? I mean, John understands that he's without sin, right? That, that's why when Jesus comes to him to be baptized, John says, hey, you, you know, you, you should be baptizing me. What? Remember, John says, I'm not even fit to carry his sandals. That's basically a way of saying, I'm not even worthy of being his slave. And yet, Jesus says to John, it is proper for us to do this to fulfill all righteousness. I would paraphrase that as, this is the right way to do things, John. But why? Well, John consents, and so the sinless Jesus is baptized, and heaven opens, the barrier between this world and the heavenly realm is ripped open, and then the Spirit of God descends as a dove on Jesus, and a voice from heaven says, This is my Son, whom I love, in him I am well pleased. Now, this is a little bit of an aside, but this is a moment where we see what people would later call the Trinity. And this is the idea, the, the mysterious idea, that God is and ha has always been three in one. Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. He has always been a perfect relationship of three persons, each fully God. Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Because right here we see all three, right? We've got the Son being baptized, we've got the Holy Spirit coming down and descending on him, and then we have the Father, who is the voice from heaven, speaking, this is, this is my Son. So, Sometimes people will say to you, oh, the Bible doesn't have the Trinity in it. Well, if you hear that, remember 
the baptism of Jesus. For one thing, the Trinity absolutely is in the Bible. The word Trinity isn't in the Bible, but the idea is certainly there. And this is one of the times that we see it plainly. So, what does this all mean? There are some events in the Gospels and in the Bible that resist simple explanations. You know, as a Bible teacher, I like to try to distill stories down to principles and lessons. And there's just some moments in the Gospels that don't easily distill down <laughs> to lessons and principles. Rather, they are moments that invite us into wonder. And they inspire us to pause and reflect and meditate. And, and they work on us in our hearts through that reflection and meditation. Uh, this is one of those moments that it's like almost we feel its meaning, but it's hard to articulate. Or that's, that's my experience of it. I think that you could, you could reflect on this moment for a very long time and never fully exhaust its meaning. Okay, so what I'm about to say is not going to be comprehensive, but I do want to say something. <laughs> so I'm going to try. So why does Jesus get baptized? Why does he say it's the right thing to do? It's not because Jesus has anything to repent from. It's not because he's a sinner in any way. It is the right thing for Jesus to do because he's showing us that God is with sinners who want to repent. God is with people who want a new beginning. God is with stumbling human beings who are humble enough to ask for his grace. In this moment, when Jesus gets in the Jordan, he is identifying with sinful human beings. He humbles himself, and he stands with us and for us when he gets in that river. And I love that the voice of the Father responds to this by saying, yes, this is my son who I love. When we hear those words, we should hear, this is my representative. This is who I am. Look at him standing with and for sinful people who need a new beginning. That pleases me. When Jesus says, baptize me, John, we shouldn't hear him saying, John, I need you to wash my sins away. We should hear him saying, John, let the sins of the people wash over me. I will bear them. I will absorb them. I choose to be immersed in all their muck so that their sin might be dealt with once and for all. There's a theologian named Chris E.W. Green who puts it this way. I love this quote. When Christ is baptized, he's not washed clean. The water is made holy. When the leper touches him, he's not made sick. The leper is healed. And when he dies, he is not dead. Death dies. 
That's so cool. Because Christ chose to be baptized, baptism is made holy. Meaning, baptism now is so much more than water and good intentions. When we go into the waters of baptism, we go into waters that Christ has filled with his presence. And so to be baptized today is not just to be baptized with water, but with the Holy Spirit because of what Christ has done. So, and that's what John said, right? He said, I baptize with water, but the one who comes after me baptizes with the Holy Spirit and fire. So, you know, what John the Baptist was offering was good, but it wasn't enough. Because we need more than water and good intentions in order to have victory over sin and death. Right? We need a miracle. We need God to intervene. You know, we need, well, we need what we see here, right? Which is heaven opening and God coming down. Now, I want to finish today by reflecting a little bit more on what John said here. Um, you know, I will baptize you with water, but he will baptize you with the Holy Spirit and fire. His winnowing fork is in his hand. And he will clear his threshing floor, gathering his wheat into the barn and burning up the chaff with unquenchable fire. What does John mean by that? Well, some of the imagery there might be lost on us because we haven't threshed or winnowed any time recently. Um, has anyone done that ever? Raise your hand. I, okay, yeah, I, I certainly haven't. So I tried to do a little bit of reading on this, and apparently the process of getting pure grain has a bunch of steps. You know, first you gotta reap what's grown, and then you need to like shake it to get the edible parts to come off of it, and that's called the threshing. But after you shake it, part of what comes off is not the pure grain. So in order to separate the pure grain from the part that you don't want, the chaff, you take like a tool and you you throw it up in the air, and the wind catches the stuff that you don't want and, and blows it away, and then the, the pure grain falls down. And the stuff that floats away eventually falls back down, and then you can like brush it up and burn it. That's the chaff. Now, clearly what John the Baptist is saying here is a metaphor, right? Christ is not carrying a winnowing fork not throwing up anything into the air. He's not literally burning anything or anybody, right? So what does the metaphor mean? What John is saying is that Jesus has the power to purify the world in a way that he does not. Jesus has power to burn away the chaff, right? To expose evil and eliminate evil from God's creation. What John can do pales in comparison to what Christ can do. Now, I think when many of us hear this metaphor, what our minds go to is, you know, something like, well, this is talking about Jesus separating believers and unbelievers. And I don't, I don't want to say that's wrong, but I think it's a little too simplistic. 
The fire that Christ brings is something that all of us need. There is a verse in Mark where Jesus says, everyone will be salted with fire. Everyone. And it's always been very mysterious to me. And we don't have a lot of time to go in depth on, on that, that phrase. But Jesus plainly says there that everyone is going to experience fire. And I want to suggest that we think of that fire as the fire in this metaphor, in this parable. The fire is the purifying power of God, which comes to us through Jesus and the Holy Spirit. And it is this purifying fire that exposes what is chaff in our lives and burns it up. So that all that remains is, is what is consistent with the Holy Spirit. Now, if the Holy Spirit has been at work in your life, you know what I'm talking about. The Spirit helps you to recognize the chaff in your life. And that can be very painful. That can feel like fire. But it is a good kind of pain because it's transforming. And that fire that burns up the chaff in our lives is ultimately the love of God at work. The love of God is a consuming fire. And it burns away everything in our lives that is not of his spirit, everything that is not of love. It awakens us to our guilt. It calls us to confess our sins. It inspires us to turn from greed. But at the same time, it accepts us. It forgives us. It gives us a chance to begin anew. It stands for us and with us. It's very interesting to me that right after John associates the Holy Spirit with fire, we see the, the Spirit descend as a dove, which is a symbol of peace, of nonviolence, of meekness, right? I think that should serve as a reminder for us that the way that God purifies the world is often not the way that we expect. The Jews expected the Messiah would come with an army and that he would purify the world through a violent military revolution. That's how they thought the purification was going to happen. They did not want a dove-like Messiah. And yet, the fire of God came through a dove-like Messiah. He did not lead an army. He told his followers to put away their swords. And he humbly stood in the waters of baptism with repentant sinners. And he allowed the sins of the world to fall upon him on the cross. He came as a dove. But that dove-likeness is fire. It has power to convict us, to show us the chaff in our lives, the chaff of unforgiveness and violence and greed and pride. 
And if we choose to receive that spirit rather than resist him, he burns up the chaff and all that remains is peace. So, let's not resist. Let's turn to Jesus and invite his fire to work in our lives. Let's invite him to burn away everything that is not of him, everything that is not of love. Amen? Lord, uh, we do want the baptism that you came to bring, the baptism of the Holy Spirit. We want to experience um, your power at work in our lives, burning away the chaff, freeing us from every sin, everything that is not of you. And we thank you, Lord, that you have come down from heaven in order to accomplish what we could not do in our own power. We thank you that you entered into those waters of baptism to stand with and for us. Lord, if we have been baptized, then I pray this morning that we would be reminded of the power and the beauty of that moment and all that it represents. And I pray that we would experience that power, the power of your presence that comes to us through baptism in our lives. In Jesus' name, amen.